This is the introduction of the podcast Behind the Bastards by Robert Evans. I've forgotten and, and it, anything that I ever knew about how to introduce podcasts. And over the next couple of weeks, as with the last couple of weeks, I'm going to careen through a variety of different styles, none of which uh, are good ways to start a podcast. And that's where we are right now at the start of this episode of Behind the Bastards, the show about terrible people with Robert Evans, a terrible person. My guest today is Anna Hosnia, host, co-host of the Ethnically Ambiguous podcast, podcast producer here at iHeartRadio, and Liquor Baron? What? <laughs> Liquor Baron? What? Like, 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 you, I am, I imagine if it were the Rolling Twenties, you would be one of the people who would be like smuggling liquor in bowling balls to speakeasies. I'm sorry, who booked me on this show? I really need to talk to my agents. Just joking. I don't know what you're talking about. And you don't have an agent. <laughs> and I will not comment further. I don't know where you got this information, but I made it quite clear I did not want it out there. <laughs> Anna, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I mean, I'm not great, I'm good. but like I'm alive. You're not great. Uh, we, we've had some fun news this week, uh, vis-a-vis the United States, uh, mm. and Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, not been a high point in our, in these two countries' international relations, I think would be mm. safe to say. Mm-mm. No, I don't think we've been doing well at all. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, most of that has to do, I mean, most of that right now, at least, has to do uh, with the fact that on Friday, January 3rd, 2020, uh, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani was assassinated via missile by the United States as his motorcade rolled out from the Baghdad airport. Uh, stories that came out in the wake of the attack revealed that he had been on his way to an official meeting with the Prime Minister of Iraq. So... <laughs> Um, bit of a th- <laughs> bit of a you. shot to call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not great. Um, not a great move necessarily if you care about Iraq's sovereign rights as a nation. Yeah, um, uh, or, or anyone's Iran's, really, <laughs> or America's, <laughs> or anyone's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a move with some some uh, complications and consequences, uh, most of which we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I'm not going to really speculate on them. Um, we're not going to talk about like the, the, the assassination itself much or the fallout from it much. Um, instead, I thought something productive to do would be to really dig in to Mr. Suleimani's life, um, and, and try to like figure out a, who he was as a person. Um, yeah. I kind of think in terms of like what I do, that's the one place I could make a difference. Um, one of the things I saw online that was really frustrating to me in the immediate wake of the attack um, CNBC uh, published an article declaring uh, the newly dead general the world's biggest bad guy, um, which Incorrect. is quite a take. And then they they later revealed that that column was uh, an op-ed, yeah. but they hadn't labeled it as such originally, which is great. Uh, just like the Washington Post had a column being like, this actually, killing Suleimani opens up some like new avenues for diplomacy for the United States. And it then turned out that the guy who wrote it worked for Raytheon, the company that designed the guidance systems for the missiles that killed Suleimani. <laughs> yeah, he's like, hey guys, this is like really great for us. Like we can sell a lot of weapons for this upcoming doom <laughs> war we're like kind of heading towards. So hey, d- stop looking at it in such a negative light. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, if he'd framed it as this is going to be great for selling weapons, I would say totally honest 
column. The fact that it was framed in terms of diplomacy yeah. is where I start to have an issue. Um, but it wasn't just sort of the right-wing and centrist media that had unbelievably bad takes uh, about Suleimani and his career. Uh, on the left-wing, people started spinning yards about Qasem's legacy uh, and portraying him as an anti-imperialist fighter. Uh, on mm. Twitter, people like Rania Kalek and Ben Norton with the Gray Zone started claiming that the Iranian general had defeated ISIS in Iraq. Uh, and tens of thousands of folks on the left retweeted and shared variations of this take. And one thing I think we can be sure of is that about 95% of the people on the left and the right and the middle who have come out with takes on Qasem Soleimani in the last week or so had not heard his name prior to his assassination. Um, no. And could not have identified a picture of him. <laughs> um I'm not an expert on the guy. I can say I've known about him for a little over four years since I started studying and traveling to Iraq. He's kind of impossible to miss if you go to that part of the world. A lot right. of people in Iraq joked that he was the prime minister of Iraq, like that was a, a common joke, particularly in the South. Um, but the fact that I've known who this guy was for four years puts me in the same basket as the man who ordered his assassination, our president. In 2015, then-candidate Donald J. Trump appeared on the talk show of right-wing radio icon Hugh Hewitt, who asked him, are you familiar with General Suleimani? Trump replied, yes, and then made it clear that this was a lie by saying, go ahead, give me a little, you know, tell me. <laughs> so Hewitt went on to explain to the future president that Suleimani ran Iran's famous Quds Force, which is essentially kind of like the CIA mixed in with the Green Berets a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and Trump clearly had no idea what the Quds Force was because his, Im his immediate response was, I think the Kurds, by the way, have been horribly mistreated by us. <laughs> so he clearly okay. heard Kurds instead of Quds yeah. Force. <laughs> and uh, Hugh Hewitt had to correct him on that. So that's, that, that's where Trump's level of knowledge of this guy was four years before ordering his assassination. Right. Which is fun. Which is like, <laughs> yeah, no, totes. Uh, love that guy. Great guy. <laughs> yeah. Think he's great. I, honestly, I've heard, never heard anything negative. Wonderful. It would have been funny if Hugh Hewitt hadn't have been a right-wing shill, if he mm. had just kept running and like seeing how much he could get Trump to say about General Suleimani in context of like thinking he was a Kurd, like you, you could have gotten 30 minutes of fun radio out of that line of questioning. Did he correct him? Uh, was he like, oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, <laughs> Trump said, oh, I thought you said Kurds. <laughs> of course. Well, I guess also not to be that person who defends Trump in any way, but if you don't know like Iranian Revolutionary Guard and you don't know that sure. they go by Q-U-D-S, Kurds, it's, I guess it's, it wouldn't, I mean, if you just have no understanding of like Middle Eastern anything, you would never yes. make that connection. <laughs> for, for, for a normal person, that's a perfectly fine mistake to make. Yeah. I would say, I think 100% of the people who run for president, mm -hmm. they should especially know. who are running through president 2016, should know who Qasem Soleimani is. They should know. <laughs> like, yes. They yeah. should know. Um, yeah, he's, he was a big guy, and the, the story we're going to tell today is the story of how he became uh, a very, very big dude. Um, and one of the things that's, like, you know, you, when, when you're talking about, like, actors at this level on the national stage who are responsible for horrible things and for good things, um, 
you don't often run across some the people who are as competent as this guy was, um, or at least that's the prevailing theory. There's a couple of different theories that maybe like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but um, he's an interesting dude. He's like a character from um, uh, like, like a, like a cold war spy novel. He's like, like, like that level of like, um, uh, uh, like genius at skullduggery. Um, mm-hmm. He's very good at what he did. And so he's an entertaining guy to read about. Um, if you can kind of put yourself in the head of like reading it as a story and not reading it as like a tale of history where actual human lives were affected, but it, it's interesting as hell. And I really recommend, um, there's a, a one particularly good article about this guy that we'll get to in a bit, but he's, he's, he's worth reading about and you'll understand more about what's going on if you do. Yeah. He's a real um, started from the bottom. Now we are here yeah. type. Yes. Yes, uh, and I won't quote the rest of that song because <laughs> yeah, there's a bad to. word in it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. this is, now, is this a clean show? Um, this is a clean show now? <laughs> no, but not that one. Um, okay. So, yeah, I, I one of the things I did when I was doing my research on Suleimani is I, I made sure to avoid – I tried to avoid as much as possible using sources that were written after the assassination – because mm-hmm. everybody writing anything after the assassination, at least right now, I assume new shit will come out at some point, but everyone right now is just rewriting the couple of good articles there were about this guy before he was mm-hmm. killed um, and getting stuff wrong in the translation. So I, I avoided that for the most part, and I would caution people to be very hesitant to trust much that you hear about this dude in the next couple of months, maybe years, because it's going to take a while for us to get much more good information out on him. He's yeah, a very politicized figure. Yeah. I also recommend reading uh, what Middle Eastern writers are writing yeah. during this time. Yes. Although one of the things, like some of the Middle Eastern writers I found writing on this guy write for places like the American Enterprise Institute, um, so like, what is that? which is like a right-wing think tank. Th- hmm. It's like a, a neoconservative think tank. Interesting. And the article on him there isn't terrible, but like everything you find on this guy is very political. Mm-hmm. Um which is like so yeah do your do your best to find a variety of sources and avoid anything new if you're going to do your own research on this um is my recommendation so yeah. um Qasem Soleimani was born on March 11th 1957 uh 7 not 57th in the village of uh, Rabor uh Rabor R A B O R uh in Kerman province Iran uh his father was a farmer and when Qasem was small his dad took out an agricultural loan from the government of the Shah uh, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi now the Shah born in 1919 had come to power in 1941 after his father the previous Shah had refused to support the allies during World War II in the early 1950s, before Qasem was born, the Shah fought a brutal power struggle with his prime minister. Pahlavi was briefly ousted and returned to power only with the express backing of the United States and Great Britain. I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of detail because that's a paragraph there, but I, th- I think we're hitting the highlights. Um... Now, upon his return, the Shah established what many would consider a brutal and repressive police state with the help of his secret police, the Savak. Uh, the Shah treated the entire nation as basically his bank account or an extension of his bank account. Uh, and by the time Qasem would have been a young boy, the problem was so bad that even British observers were shocked by the level of corruption within the Iranian government. Uh, here's a selection I picked almost at random from a 1976 New York Times article talking about the Shah's government. Quote, 
Two undersecretaries, the handsome Hussein Alizeda and the scholarly Dr. Muhammad Ali Serifa, uh, or Serafi, have been dismissed for alleged sugar purchasing irregularities, which are said to have involved the Iranian government in unneeded expenditures of $45 million. To underscore the point, Tehran newspapers, which are indirectly controlled by the regime, have piously pointed out that this money could have been used to build 30,000 country schools or 3,000 hospitals. So, like, that's the the the, the kind of shady de- dealings that are, like, daily news um, when the Shah is in power. And the United States is involved in quite a lot of this. Uh, Grumman, which at that time was a Long Island aerospace concern and is now Northrop Grumman, which is, like, a major part of our, like, uh, uh, security industry, like, se- security industrial complex, I'd guess you say. Um, like they did a bunch of like shady bribes to middlemen in Iran in order to get the Iranian government to like buy a bunch of airplane parts and stuff from them that weren't necessarily like actually useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Grumman was basically funneling corporate money into the hands of individual members of the Shah's government so that they would spend huge amounts of defense money on shit they didn't need, which would be profits for Grumman. Um, and all of the money that was spent on this was, of course, money that normal Iranian people like Qasim's dad paid to the Shah's government in taxes. Um, so Qasim grew up as an ad- into an adolescent watching his father pay crippling taxes and interest on a loan to a central government that basically stole money from its people for their own personal enrichment. Um, now, uh, when his That's, father's uh, agricultural hey, loan look, came as an to- Iranian, can't comment further. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you do what you gotta um, do, you know? It- <laughs> yeah. Um, so when his father's agriculture alone came due, the Shah's government offered no forgiveness or respite. Qasim's father wound up owing the equivalent of about 100 U.S. dollars, which was enough debt to have rendered his family destitute at that point in time. So at age 13, Qasim and his cousin Ahmad had to leave home without their parents knowing in order to go work in the city of Kerman. He later recalled, At night, we couldn't fall asleep with the sadness of thinking that government agents were coming to arrest our fathers. We were only 13, and our bodies were so tiny. Wherever we went, they wouldn't hire us. Until one day when we were hired as laborers at a school construction site on Kaju Street, which is where the city ended. They paid us two tomen per day, which Hmm. is the currency at the time, I guess. So it took eight months for the boys to save up enough money to make a meaningful dent in their father's debts. Uh, And unfortunately, by the time they had saved up enough money, it was late enough in the year that the mountain passes back home were covered in thick snow. The boys had to find a local man with a car, a guy named Palavan, uh, and he drove them back. And according to Suleimani's later recollections, this guy really hated the Shah. And he was the first person to express seditious political views to the young Qasim. Mm. Palavan was uh, particularly furious that small children would have, to, would have to work full time to pay off a relative's debt to the already wealthy Shah. Uh, this is the time for them to rest and play, not work as a laborer in a strange city. I spit on the life they have made for us, Qasim recalled this guy saying. Um, so this is like clearly an important moment in his young life and it makes his like his personal memoirs. Um, and again, it's hard to say how true that all is. Cause again, he's a very politicized figure. These are the memoirs he came out with and you get the hint with some of them that he's trying to sort of like inculcate some values that he wants to spread in the populace. Um, but most of what we know about Qasim's early life came from either a book that he wrote or that might've been ghostwritten about his life. Um, and then, you know, a few interviewers who have kind of like talked around folks in that region, some historians and stuff, but there's, there's not a huge amount out there. 
Um, the experts who have analyzed Qasim's early life outside of his own book do agree that he grew up very poor and he would have been working heavily from a young age. The story about his father's debt uh, and that he had he and a cousin had to like go to the city to work it off. That's almost certainly true. Um, we know Qasim got no more than a high school education. He spent about five years in school, maybe. Um, and by the time he was a young adult, he'd managed to get himself a job working for the water department in the city of Kerman. Now, by this point, it was the 1970s, in the twilight of the Shah's period of control. Revolutionary fervor had gripped many sections of Iranian society. Various movements rose up to question the royal grip on power. Qasim, meanwhile, dedicated himself to getting swole as hell. Uh, He became a dedicated weightlifter and began socializing (laughs) with a group of equally swole and equally frustrated young men. Um, So he's not a revolutionary initially. He's He's a gym rat. As right, he, like, comes into his like late teens, early twenties. Right, based on my understanding, he wasn't very religious either. I think, um, yeah, he grew up kind of not necessarily secular, but it wasn't the most uh, present in his no childhood growing up. No, and I, I you don't get the feeling. You, you hear different things about this guy. Some who will say he was extremely pious. A lot of folks who like knew him and talked, you you get the feeling kind of openly about it. It wasn't a big deal to him. Like I I do think it would be accurate to say his religion was the Iranian state and like uh, uh, the revolution as he saw it. Like I I think he was that kind of dude as opposed to like being super pious. But he Um, was, he was, funny you say he's pious because he was a Pisces, uh, which means he's very kind of has some intensity and but he's adapted, yeah, you, so he you know he adapts to his situation, and you know when you're trying to fight to what pay off a loan for your father, or just trying to survive when you're poor, and you just adapt to your environment and do what you need to do yep. to get by. And if that is joining a army, you do what you can. Yeah, he's adaptive. Uh, so he, uh, as as a young man, he, um, yeah, he starts getting swole as hell, um, and that that's mostly his social group for a little while. And uh, he does start attending a series of sermons by a traveling preacher who worked with one of the future ayatollahs. Um, mm. And this is where Qasim first became seduced by the idea of Iran without its Shah. Um, mm. So he's not again. He's he's not a part of the. Uh, there is like a revolutionary movement. There's like a revolutionary leftist movement in Iran and a revolutionary like uh, Islamist movement. Um, and obviously, the Islamist movement is the one that actually like overthrow succeeds in overthrowing the Shah. Um, right. But he's not really a part of any of that. Like he's entranced by some of the the speeches of some of these guys who are pro that, but he never really gets involved. Um, And so Mm -hmm. in 1979, uh, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini overthrows the Shah's government uh, and declares an Islamic Republic in Iran, or a bunch of people backing uh, the Ayatollah, I should say. He didn't didn't do it on his own. Um, Now, one of the new Ayatollah's first orders of business was to secure this new regime from being overthrown, uh, particularly by elements in the military who might still have been loyal to the Shah, or at least who weren't necessarily loyal to the Ayatollah. Uh, and to this end, he established the Revolutionary Guard, uh, which is essentially was essentially a separate branch of the military that was loyal directly to the clerics who now ran the country. Um, and young Qasim left his gig at the Water Department to join the Revolutionary Guard. He found himself like called to get involved with this new thing. And this is a smart move. You see this a lot in history when you have revolutions. Most of them will set up 
a military like side structure. Like mm-hmm. if they don't outright just destroy the military, the military stays intact, but nobody really trusts it. You see this with like a lot of revol- you see revolutionary governments. You don't see right. it in like the Soviet Union so much because they did kind of destroy everything that had existed before. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see it in a lot of revolutionary movements where like they'll have to set up a side sort of security structure outside of what had existed before because they can't do away with that entirely, but they don't trust it. And when you have this new kind of thing, like the Revolutionary Guard was, you have an opportunity for like a young man with no history to make a big name for himself. Because like the uh, the military or like the intelligence agencies, like those are like really ossified, strict structures where like – you know, there's a certain way they do things and they tend to hire from certain groups of the population. And if you don't know anybody, you're probably not going to get much of a shot there. Um, right. Whereas the Revolutionary Guard, nothing's written. And so this guy, this poor kid from Karaman, um, can join it and he has a chance to actually like build a career for himself. And he immediately distinguishes himself as very intelligent, um, very ambitious, and he starts to rise within the Revolutionary Guards. Um, and loyal. And by the time he's 20... 20- yeah, he's a and Pisces. extremely loyal because he's a Pisces. Yes, that's exactly what he credited it to as well. Yeah, big, yeah. big uh, Zodiac guy. I remember that about him. Um, <laughs> so by the time Suleimani's 23 years old, he'd earned himself enough trust that he was sent with a group of guardsmen to suppress uh, pretty brutally a Kurdish uprising in West Azerbaijan in a place called Mahabad. Now, in the late 1940s, Mahabad had been the site of a short-lived Kurdish socialist republic, which had fought for its independence briefly, but was abandoned by the USSR, its only hope of survival, and then eaten up and destroyed. Uh, In the wake of the Shah's overthrow, Mahabad's Kurds had decided to basically give independence another go. If you know anything about Kurdish history, this happens all the time, uh, and it never works out. (laughs) So, um, And it did not work out this time. Um, We don't know much specifically about Suleimani's individual actions to crush this uprising. Uh, It's not part of his backstory that's often emphasized, uh, particularly since he wound up dealing very frequently with Kurds in Iraq and in Syria on a diplomatic basis over the course of his career, so it wasn't a great thing to go into detail about. Um, but this action against the Mahabad uprising by the Revolutionary Guard um, was really like the first big action taken by the Revolutionary Guard. Um, and participating in the Mahabad rebellion um, becomes seen as like, if you do that, like that's kind of what makes you, um, like marks you out as like a, a, a big name, an OG in the Revolutionary Guard Corps, is you were a part of this this like force that was deployed to Mahabad. Right. And it sets you up for success and for promotion and stuff within the organization. Um, and so because he's there at this time, like it puts him in a really good position for what comes next. Uh, you know what's, you know what's going to come next? World Anna? domination. Well, kind of the opposite, actually. A a crippling and uh, unbelievably destructive invasion by Iraq. (laughs) Oh, that old, that little old thing? You know, it's interesting. (laughs) My uh, father fought in the Iran-Iraq war, and so did my mother. Well, she didn't fight. I think she was more on, like, whatever the women do, not fight. Yeah, yeah. Based on my understanding, she said she played a drum, which I think she's lying, but that's casual Persian parent thing. They'll never tell you the truth, but anyway. I mean, aren't I? Unless I'm mistaken, there's some stories of like people, like women who would like run with explosives under Iraqi tanks and blow them up and themselves up and stuff. Like it was a, a pretty desperate Damn. war, especially in the early stages. Um, yeah, I believe my father rode horses. That was his thing. He, uh, I don't, 
he just that told me he rode sense. horses. He's not also very forthcoming about his war days. I mean, it's we don't. It's not very much known in the West, but it's like one of the worst things that happened in the latter half of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of bad wars in the latter half of the twentieth century, but that one, that one's up there. Yeah. Um, and it was um, it, it 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 would prove to be like um, a foundational moment, obviously for the modern nation of Iran, um, but also for Qasem. Mm-hmm. Um, so for a little bit of a background on this war, in 1980, Saddam Hussein, uh, you might know him for his romance novels. Um, mm-hmm. He also was the dictator <laughs> of a country writer. called Iraq. Gorgeous writer. <laughs> yeah. uh, Saddam Hussein launched an invasion of Iran. His goal seems to have been to take advantage of political chaos in the country following the revolution to make a quick, quick grab for land and power. Um, Now, there are rumors that you'll hear to this day that Saddam invaded with a green light from the United States, and there's actually very little hard evidence for this. Most of what we have suggests the Carter administration was too busy dealing with the Iranian hostage crisis, um, and they were actually really unhappy that Saddam invaded and complicated matters. And from internal Iraqi documents, we know Saddam expected the U.S. to impose the invasion. We'll talk about the fucked up shit the United States did here shortly. Um, but what's important is that Saddam Hussein launches this fucking invasion of Iran thinking it's going to be easy. It's kind of the same reasoning you see with, um, with like Hitler in, um, uh, Operation Barbarossa when he invades Russia, where there's just been this revolution. Everything is unsettled. Uh, the old order has been torn down and replaced with a new one. And this neighbor who's belligerent is like, oh, I bet it'll be really easy to kick their asses. Um, right. And it works out kind of the same. It works out similarly <laughs> to that one. Um, yeah, it, 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 Iran doesn't turn out to be a pushover. Uh, the war would come yeah. to be known as I think this. Yeah, the sacred defense is the term used. Sacred defense. Do you have a translation for that? Sacred. Um, I don't have it in Farsi. I the two terms I've heard for it is the sacred defense and the imposed war. Um, I'll have to look into that a little. I'm curious what it is. What what did you, what did you grow up being told about it? I wasn't told much. I, a a thing that goes on and sort of, um, maybe it's just, I don't want to say just blatantly immigrant families, but something I noticed in my Persian family is that certain darker aspects aren't spoken about and you're kind of, um, like guarded from those things. So you're not really like told about such things. Like, when I was told about the Shah, like they were like, he was this lavish, you know, king who always wore gold. Like it was all this like beautiful imagery of like a man who was covered yeah. in gold, basically. And, um, you know, later as I grew up and I started reading, I'm like, oh, he's, he was a deeply corrupt man who, you know, obvi- had a father who basically ruined him. So he was never really able to stand up for himself and be his own. It was like all this stuff of layers and layers of layers. But like. My parents would have never told me any of that. You know, like I ha- always had like a very base understanding until I went and did my own research and was like, oh, like I remember my father gave me the book, All the Shah's Men. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not how I expected it to be. Like, <laughs> uh, wait a second. Like, what happened here? And, you know, they just kind of they like to sugarcoat it because they're trying to protect you from, I guess, yeah, internalized I mean, genetic trauma, which you're like, uh what are you gonna do there's an extent to which that kind of sounds like my upbringing like Mm -hmm. just in terms of like 
you know, you hear like Thomas Jefferson was this great scholar of liberty and this great like this this the, the, this great thinker and like the nature of like human freedom. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, and he also raped a slave for decades. Like, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I mean, but you basically, know who... I, my uh, whole understanding of the Iran-Iraq war was that my parents were in it because of the two-year draft, which is still in place in Iran. They were like, hey, we went and did it, but now we're in America and we are looking forward. And that is about all I understood. And I just saw photos of my parents, like, in their, like, gear, like, out doing things, like my dad on a horse or eating. Well, you know what outfit. doesn't <laughs> have a two-year draft, Anna? You know what won't draft your parents for two years to fight in a war against Iraq? What? The, the products and services <laughs> that support this show. Hell yeah. They have no legal power to do so. Yet. That's what I would hope for. There's some bills we're putting up in the House that will hopefully, mm. that will hopefully give our, our supporters the right to draft U.S. citizens. I am, I am a very supportive of that. I said we cut out the middlemen, get rid of that state, just let advertisers directly compel people in the military service. I'm sorry. I have one quick question before we go to break. What was the mm-hmm. draft ages when the original draft in the U.S. was on? Do you know? Oh, geez. I, th- I think it was – I mean, it, was, it might have been 17, but I think it started at 18. And then it went to how old? Like, when did they cap it? I believe I, – I think 35. 35? Damn, I'm about to get drafted. Yeah, you, you can hold a right. I mean, to be honest, I think it should start at like 30 mm-hmm. and go up to 70. Uh, no, 70? They're, we can't yep. be just killing our people like that. Why Send not? A if we're if, look, if, the, if the boomers. If think about how think about how different the Iraq war would have been if we'd sent the boomers out to fight it first. I mean, we would lose a lot of boomers. I mean, I guess that's. I shouldn't oh, say that. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it seems like it just, uh, 17 seems too young. I could see mm-hmm. 20 to 30. Because after 30, that's when you start to be like, my back. <laughs> and then it's like, I think you okay, should have luck. to be. I, you know, I support like I think twenty two would be a good minimum age. You're you're old enough to where we're like you you sh- I don't know maybe twenty five. You can't rent a car till you're twenty five. That seems like why should you be able to r- drive a tank? Yeah, that's true. Word. If if fucking uh, I mean not that I uh, I don't want there to be a draft yeah. to be clear. I, I was just curious because I've been thinking about it because it's been people have been talking about drafts and draft dodging. I was just curious. I don't want a draft to be clear. Please don't. I don't oppose a draft, but if you're going to have a draft, start with people who are 50 and older. That's that's my my thinking on the matter. But speaking of the draft, draft these products into your lifestyle. We're back. And uh, this is a fun moment. Um, we don't often have news break while we're recording an episode, uh, but but as we went off to break, uh, the news dropped that uh, a series of missiles were fired at Al Assad uh, Air Base, a U.S. Air Base near Erbil in northern Iraq. Uh, and our government is saying they were fired uh, by Tehran. Uh, obviously, I don't think from Tehran, um, but it looks like it was probably the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps who fired the missiles. Um, now, a number of these missiles were fired, uh, like, most recently a day or two pre- prior to that by members of uh, an Iraqi uh, Shia militia supported by Iran. So it's kind of not clear how different this all is from that, but it seems like uh, 
this is at least continuing to happen. So I guess we'll see how it goes. That's fun news. Yeah, great times. <laughs> Yay. Everything's great. I love it when all of the people in charge are level-headed and sane. Um, so, yeah, when we were talking in the past about horrible violence between Iraq and Iran, uh, we are talking about the uh, Iraqi invasion of Iran, the Iran-Iraq war uh, that continued yeah. for most of the 80s. So uh, at the start of this war, um, you know, Saddam had hoped it would be an easy victory due to the technical superiority of its forces, but stiff Iranian resistance quickly turned the war into a World War I-style meat grinder. Uh, Qasem Soleimani was at the front almost from the beginning. Uh, now, there are two different versions of this story, and I found both collected by the American Enterprise Institute, a, a neoconservative think tank. And again, I must note that since Qasem's life is very politicized, you're going to have trouble finding sources on him that don't have some sort of clear bias. Uh, the AEI report mm. uh, cites its sources and seems pretty in line with the other stuff I've read. Uh, it doesn't seem – I'm not saying anything crazy in here at least. Right. Um, and it describes two different theories as to how he sort of got his career started at the beginning of the war. Uh, quote, Suleimani reveals that he was given the task of administering the Kerman Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Garrison upon his return from Mahabad. In the face of the Iraqi invasion of Iran, Suleimani trained and expedited several contingents from Kerman to the southern front against Iraq. Later, the IRGC sent a company under Suleimani's command to Susangerd, where it resisted Iraqi advances on the Mal- uh, Malikia Front. Malik provides an almost an, who's a, an Iranian scholar provides an almost entirely different account of Soleimani's participation in the war against Iraq. According to Malik, Soleimani was sent to the front as merely a participant in a very casual mission transferring water to the front. He was sent to the front for only two weeks, but the enlightened and heavenly atmosphere of the front left such an impression on the heart of the young and pure workman or technician that he, rather than spending only two weeks of his mission at the front, spent almost the entire eight-year-long period of war there. Now, it's not possible to verify either account. Mm-hmm. Uh, Suleimani's own account gives the impression of a young man with a clear purpose in life, while Malik's account is sort of like uh, uh, idealistic. Like, uh, yeah, like Okay, so basically you, you've got the two different versions you've got of how this guy starts the Iran-Iraq war. One is kind of like a, a pretty standard military story. This guy's in charge of a military mm-hmm. unit. He is sent up to the front. And he distinguishes himself there, so he stays stationed there and fighting at, like, the head of things for the entirety of the war, pretty much. And the other account is that he's sent up there on, like, a non-aggressive mission to, like, deliver water to soldiers, and he just falls in love with being up at the front line. Um, And I I don't know which of these is true. Um, I can say that the most trustworthy Western account um, comes from a 2013 New Yorker article, The Shadow Commander, by Dexter Filkins. It's the article you'll probably have seen shared on Soleimani after his assassination. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a pretty balanced and well-written article. Um, and it goes with the um, the water carrier sort of version of events that he was sent up there to deliver water to the front, and that he like fell in love with you know uh, the the culture of sort of frontline sacrifice, and you know gradually got more and more and more involved. Right. Um, I do th- I do think it's worth digging into like kind of what the motivations behind both variations on this story might be. Um, I think the water boy backstory is kind of the one both the Iranian government and Soleimani himself wanted people to believe. Okay, um, then I believe and it. I think this, yeah. <laughs> um, I I I think that uh, like like clearly, obviously, the government has a definite interest in pushing like this view of like a guy going up to the front and being kind of. 
like inspired by the heavenly atmosphere it like that he that he feels there this like atmosphere of sacrifice you kind of see that in any sort of like government um like you compared to like the movie american sniper um but it also is is kind of worth noting that um the official version of Qasem's biography doesn't make him out to have been like an early radical supporter of the Ayatollah. It admits that he was like kind of just working out at the gym when all that was going on. Um, so it is it is like entirely possible that it, this is an accurate depiction of events that like when he kind of really gets radicalized and inspired and and uh, like okay, finds his calling in life is at the front line during this war. Um, and it like, there's a lot of reason to believe that a lot of young men find their first experiences with combat at like a front line like that to be kind of intoxicating. It tends to either like break young people or be something they, they find like almost, uh, addictive. Um, and it, it seems like it would be fair to say that Qasem wound up on kind of the addicted side of that. Uh, in the mid-aughts, while delivering a speech at the site of one of the Iran-Iraq War's major battles, he said this to a reporter. The battlefield is mankind's lost paradise, the paradise in which morality and human conduct are at their highest. One type of paradise that men imagine is about streams, beautiful maidens, and lush landscapes. But there is another kind of paradise, the battlefield. So that's that's... I mean, it's one of those things. It's definitely the angle he wants to portray about himself. It also might right. be true because he spent the whole of his life in war zones, basically. Well, so, I mean, I think some people, yeah. and it's just based off my understanding of like career military people, like they are, they feel the most, I mean, it's weird to say they feel the most at home at war. Yeah. Like that's where they thrive. It's what they understand best. Like you take them and put them yeah. at a dinner table and you're like, so how was your day? And they're like... I mean, <laughs> like they don't even know what to say to you because they're like, look, I, mean, I fight wars. I come up with strategy. This is the work I do. And they don't really know how to deal with other things outside of that. This is how they are. It's how they're wired. No, and I can, I can, t- I, I've had a lot less experience at front lines than this guy, but it, it is addictive. Um, mm-hmm. Like the atmosphere out there, the, addin- the additional sense of like meaning everything's imbued with. And I, I do, you know, I, I try to be like critical whenever you're trying to figure out like what do these people want you to believe about them? Like what are they putting out into the media versus what is true? But I kind of think the version of events that Qasem relates about his early war experiences are more honest than not just because it tracks with the rest of the guy's life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a dude who falls in love with battle and sacrifice and makes that his life for the next 30 years or whatever. Um, that, that, that's how it seems mm. to me. Um, yeah. And hmm. uh, even the sources that hate Qasem Soleimani are consistent, uh, that he served with distinction at the very front of the Iran Iraq war for pretty much the entirety of the time that it went on. Right. Uh, and I'm going to quote from the New the New Yorker now. Suleimani earned a reputation for bravery and Alan, especially as a result of reconnaissance missions he undertook behind Iraqi lines. He returned from several missions bearing a goat, which his soldiers slaughtered and grilled. Even the Iraqis, our enemy, admired him for this, a former Revolutionary Guard officer who defected to the United States told me. On Iraqi radio, Suleimani became known as the Goat Thief. In recognition of his effectiveness, Elefana said, he was put in charge of a brigade from Kerman with men from gyms where he lifted weights. 
The Iranian army was badly overmatched, and its commanders resorted to crude and costly tactics. In human wave assaults, they sent thousands of young men directly into the Iraqi lines, often to clear minefields, and soldiers died at a precipitous rate. Soleimani seemed distressed by the loss of life. Before sending his men into battle, he would embrace each one and bid him goodbye. In speeches, he praised martyred soldiers and begged their forgiveness for not being martyred himself. When Soleimani's superiors announced plans to attack the Fa Peninsula, he dismissed them as wasteful and foolhardy. The former Revolutionary Guard officer recalled seeing Suleimani in 1985 after a battle in which his brigade had suffered many dead and wounded. He was sitting alone in a corner of a tent. He was very silent, thinking about the people he'd lost, the officer said. So this is a rough uh, time. Yeah. Huh. Now, from the best information available, Suleimani, again, was a dedicated soldier. Uh, Rule Mark Gerecht was a young CIA officer in Istanbul during the war, uh, mm-hmm. and he interfaced with many wounded Iranian soldiers who were sent there on leave to recuperate, and he met Suleimani there during one of the times when the general was wounded. And Gerecht's job in the CIA was basically to, like, meet these young Iranians away from home to, like, recover and try to oh. recruit them as, like, CIA informants. So he met a lot Oof. of these guys. Um, Did they try and, he and recruit said this him? Later. I think he, I mean, he definitely talked to him. Uh, um, I, I I don't think it took. But he was like, sorry, bro. I'm a <laughs> um, Pisces. You know how that be. Can't, you know, yeah, I'm loyal that's exactly to my what guy. he said. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell well, yeah. and, and Gorecht was a Gemini, so. No, oh, wow. Like okay. All right, I'm a Gemini, so, so slow down, uh, okay? <laughs> Gorecht said, you'd get a whole variety of guardsmen. You'd get clerics. You'd get people who came to breathe in horror and drink. There were the, the broken and the burned out, the hollow-eyed, the guys who had been destroyed. And then there were the bright-eyed guys who just couldn't wait to get back to the front. I'd put Suleimani in the latter category. So death estimates from the Iran-Iraq war range from around half a million to over a million. And over a million honestly seems like the most credible uh, uh, estimate. Um, it was, yeah, one of the most brutal conflicts of the latter half of the 20th century. Um, and living through the carnage it caused would have been a pretty radicalizing experience for a guy like Suleimani, who saw both wars' beauty and its horror. Now, Qasem rose rapidly through the ranks, and by his mid-20s, he was commanding an entire division. And his lofty position in the military would have made him aware of the incredibly shady dealings going on in the background. I am speculating here, but it is my suspicion that American policy during this period would go on to have a major impact on the man Qasem Soleimani became and the tactics he engaged in for the rest of his life. In 1992, the New York Times published a bombshell report titled, The U.S. Secretly Gave Aid to Iraq Early in Its War Against Iran. Or it should have been a bombshell report, but since it was about the Middle East and it wasn't during one of the cumulative 11 weeks uh, that our nation, nation has cared about stuff happening in the Middle East, no one really noticed the article. But it was damning, uh, and I'm going to read a quote from it now. The Reagan administration secretly decided to provide highly classified intelligence to Iraq in the spring of 1982, more than two years earlier than previously disclosed, while also permitting the sale of American-made arms to Baghdad in a successful effort to help President Saddam Hussein avert imminent defeat in the war with Iran, former intelligence and State Department officials say. The American decision to lend crucial help to Baghdad so early in the 1980-88 Iran-Iraq war came after American intelligence agencies warned that Iraq was on the verge of being overrun by Iran whose army was bolstered by the, uh, the year before by covert shipments of American-made weapons. So in other words, Iraq invades Iran, and as soon as Reagan comes to power, we send Iran a bunch of guns illegally. We actually have Israel sell them the guns. Right. It was um, the Iran in order to bolster... Contra. Oh, this is before that shit, Oh, that, this was before? That's even... That's a different thing. Yeah. yeah. Wait, wait. We did that's this like, twice? Yeah. 
Under yeah, Reagan? We kept doing this. Yeah, you couldn't stop Ronald Reagan from selling arms to Iran. Well, in buying them. For, Wait, it, so what did he use the money to do this time? Well, this was not about this first time. I, I don't think there was even oh, a profit. Oh, motive they to were it. just this like first time whatever. It was like a geopolitical thing. Yeah, he didn't want Jesus. Iraq to overrun Iran, so we sent weapons to Iran, and then because the way the Iran-Iraq war goes is Saddam invades Iran. Uh-huh. And it's a debacle for him, him, and he loses a huge number of men. But then Iran, once they push Iraq out, invades Iraq as sort of like, well, let's see how far we can take this shit. And then it's a disaster for Iran. And what happens is Saddam invades, then he gets pushed back in large part due to the fact that the U.S. gave Iran a bunch of weapons. And so the U.S. is like, shit, now Iran is going to overrun Iraq. So we send Iraq a shitload of weapons. And not just do we send them weapons, we send them high-level intelligence on the positioning of Iranian troops and military divisions with the specific knowledge that Saddam Hussein is going to deploy chemical weapons against those people. So we did not give Saddam his chemical weapons, although his chemical <coughs> stockpile was made in, with mm-hmm. a lot of help from European scientists. Hell yeah. Um, but we specifically helped Saddam's military target the Iranian military, including uh, Soleimani's units, because his unit lost thousands of men to chemical weapons, with Jesus. chemical weapons. So during this war, Soleimani is at a high enough level that I'm pretty sure if he doesn't know while it's going on, he knows immediately afterwards that the United States is arming both sides of this conflict. Um, and it is it is a very – this is not – I want to I be clear here. This often gets like played as like the CIA fucking around. Mm-hmm. This is not the CIA fucking around. This is just this straight is the up State the Department. U.S. state government. This and is they're like, state why does the Soleimani, U- Soleimani yeah. not – like us. Why do, it's like because he's been watching every, the U.S. for years fuck with everybody. That's wild. Now, one former – yeah, I, I think it's interesting here because it, it's specifically – one uh, there, like one of the State Department officials that the New York Times talked to like specifically laid out that this was not a CAA rogue initiative but that it had been approved at the highest levels of the Reagan administration. The exact quote he gave them was, we wanted to avoid victory by both sides. Um, so basically we hmm. wanted there to be a bloody stalemate. Um, it's, They're like, it's, we're trying uh, to be like really neutral about this, but at the same time, we are going to give everybody weapons. Yeah, we're going to give everybody weapons. And like the oh way God. we did it was really shady. We basically looked the, we, we sold weapons uh, to Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, and then looked the other way while Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait sent those weapons to Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um. From the Times, quote, American officials made no effort to stop these sales known to many in the administration, even though American export law forbids the third party transfer of American made arms without Washington's permission. So if Suleimani wasn't aware of this all at the time, he was aware of it by 1992 when this report came out in the New York Times. I'm going to guess a guy like him would have read it. It was not a secret New York Times article or anything. I I assume Iran's got a couple of subscriptions um, is what I'm going to say. So yeah. Now... uh, when uh, the war ended in 1988, Suleimani and his division uh, were posted to the chaotic eastern frontier of Iran, where gangs of narcotic smugglers laden with Afghan opium had rendered much of the region wild and uncontrollable. For several years, Qasim fought a brutal, bloody, but ultimately successful war on drugs in that part of the country. 
Uh, among other things, he gained a reputation for being incorruptible. He also mm. spent a lot of time fighting against the Taliban, um, who were uh, enemies of Iran at that period of time. And he spent a lot of time like backing and moving in agents and like supporting militias in the area that were anti-Taliban, including a militia called the Northern Alliance, uh, who you might have heard about when we invaded uh, Afghanistan because they're the guys we allied with too. So now in 1998, uh, based on all of this experience, Qasem Soleimani was a natural choice to put, it put, to put at the head of Iran's notorious Quds Force. Uh, the Quds Force is an elite division within the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and essentially serves, as a uh, serves in a mix of functions, a bit like the CIA crossed with like Joint Special Operations Command. Um, the Iran-Iraq War had ended after a series of uh, disastrous offenses into Iraq cost hundreds of thousands of Iranian lives, and this debacle had convinced the government that their military future lay in asymmetrical warfare. Um, <laughs> you can't compete with, like, the big Western nations in, like, straight-up tank battles, and it's incredibly wasteful to try. Mm -hmm. So instead, let's, let's get smarter about this. You know, fund insurgencies, get better at that sort of fighting. Um, and they, in, in this way, Iran kind of guesses what the warfare is going to be like in the 21st century. They're definitely ahead of the United States um, in figuring that part out. Right. So uh, in the wake of the Gulf War, as U.S. influence expanded across the Middle East, uh, the Quds Force became increasingly important, important to Iran's geopolitical strategy. It was basically responsible for projecting power outside of the Islamic Republic. So Qasem's appointment to the head of this force was the sign of the deep trust the Ayatollah placed in him. Uh, over the years he held the job, Soleimani would prove to be a dedicated supporter of the conservative clerical elements in the Iranian government. In 1999, a series of student protests racked the country uh, and pushed for reform within the nation's uh, harsh religious laws. President Mohammad Khatami, who had come to power as a reformer, was unwilling to crack down on these students. Qasem Soleimani and several other Revolutionary Guard commanders signed a letter promising they would depose the president if he did not brutally crush the demonstrations, which were brutally crushed in the wake of this. Um, and speaking of brutally crushing student demonstrations for liberty. Okay. You know who won't do that? An ad? An ad. A sponsor? That's right. <laughs> a sponsor, unless it unless it's one of our Raytheon sponsored ads, mm, in which case that is Raytheon. kind of their business. Yeah, although Raytheon does also need uh, insurgent movements in order to stay profitable. So really, you know, if you're an insurgent, Raytheon is your best friend. Um, Yikes! By Raytheon. <laughs> oh boy, uh, I do not stand by that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Then it cuts to immediately we get a Raytheon ad because we have horrible God, luck. <laughs> I, am, I am hoping for the day we get a Raytheon ad. That's going to be fun. I mean, don't be surprised. We were getting Coke Bro uh, mm -hmm. ads and we were getting Fox News ads. We get random ads. Yeah. It's beautiful. And I, I'm just excited okay. for it to be Raytheon. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. 
The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now, the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! So uh, we've been talking about the Quds Force a bit, which Qasem Soleimani's just been uh, appointed to head. Um, the Quds Force is named after the Farsi word for Jerusalem, um, which gives you some idea as to what is seen as its ultimate purpose. Um, and there's definitely like a, a big angle that's sort of like Iran is the head of this uh, axis against Israel um, and against the United States. And in fact, the term axis of resistance is used a lot to like what they're trying to build in the Middle East in opposition to Israel and the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Quds Force headquarters is very notably um, on the former U.S. embassy campus in Tehran, the embassy that was taken over um, during the Iranian Revolution and stuff, which is like, that's a move right there. Um, so 
Now that he's in charge uh, of the Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani embarks on a policy of recruiting and training agents all across the Middle East. Um, his biggest success is probably Hezbollah, uh, an Iran-supported militia and political party in Lebanon that spent most of the last couple of decades chucking rockets into Israel and being bombed by Israel in response. Mm. Um, Hezbollah started as a resistance uh, to the Israeli occupation because Israel occupied uh, a lot of Lebanon up until about 2000. Um, and constant Hezbollah insurgent attacks were a big part of why Israel eventually like gave up on that occupation. Um, so it's it's again, I'm not going to be doing justice to all of this history. I'm trying to provide the broad strokes. Right. Um, and a lot of the ability of Iran to get weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon, and particularly to send them the rockets that Hezbollah like intermittently fires into Israel, um, is possible because. Iran's ally is Syria. And so Iran mm-hmm. is able to move rockets and support and like money and weapons up through Syria. So keep that in mind because that's going to be very important later. So uh, Qasem was also busy in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban are sworn enemies of Iran's clerical regime. And for years before 9-11, Soleimani was integral in backing and supporting the resistance to the Taliban. And I'm going to quote now from a report in West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. Quote, In August 1998, a few months into Soleimani's uh, tenor at the head of the Quds Force, Taliban forces swept into the northern Afghan city of Mazar-i-Sharif, home to a substantial community of ethnic Hazaras, Farsi-speaking Shia Muslims. The Taliban initiated a brutal pogrom against members of the minority, trashing homes, raping women and girls, and massacring hundreds of Shia men and boys. Among the dead was a group of nine Iranians, eight diplomats, and a journalist. At this naked provocation, factions on both sides turned white-hot for war. The IRG IRGC's overall commander at the time, Yahya Rahim Safawi, requested Supreme Leader Khamenei's permission for the punishment of the Taliban to advance to Herat, a city in western Afghanistan, annihilate, punish, eliminate them. Iran began massing an invasion force of almost a quarter of a million soldiers along the Afghan border. Reportedly, it was Soleimani who stepped in and defused the situation without resorting to further violence. Instead of confronting the Taliban directly, Soleimani opted to throw increased Iranian support behind the opposition Northern Alliance, personally helping to direct the group's operations from a uh, base across Afghanistan's northern border in Tajikistan. It was a model of proxy warfare to which he would return again and again. So this is really important. There's this, the Taliban murders a bunch of people, including Iranians, and mm-hmm. there's this huge outrage within Iran calling for an invasion of Afghanistan in mm-hmm. the late 1990s. And they have a quarter of a million men massed to do it. And Soleimani says, no, 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 fuck that. We've seen what mass invasions look like. We've seen right. what like war on that scale looks like, particularly against an enemy like the Taliban that's never going to stand and fight. He's kind of predicting like what would happen in the United States later. Like that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. The smart thing to do is send in support and trainers and commandos and bolster one of the militias that of Afghans that are already fighting the Northern Alliance uh, or that are already fighting the Taliban. And like that's that's the way to actually make progress in Afghanistan. There's no benefit to invading Afghanistan. Right. Um, which, you know, looking at the history of invading Afghanistan, not a dumb play. Um now, uh, obviously, uh, in 2001, uh, later in 2001, uh, 9-11, uh, 9-11 to all over everybody's asses, uh, and the U.S. Uh, committed itself to invading and then never leaving Afghanistan for reasons which are still unclear. 
Uh, Qasem Soleimani was only too happy to lend his forces support to the American military effort in that country. He and his Quds Force and their proxies in Afghanistan work closely with U.S. Special Forces in particular. Quds Force soldiers and U.S. Special Operators fought side-by-side against the Taliban in one of those chapters of the War on Terror that we do not talk about very much anymore. But this is where things are at the start of the war in Afghanistan, is Iran and the United States very much working together against the Taliban. Uh So as the Bush administration began to ramp up the propaganda campaign that preceded the totally successful and widely praised invasion of Iraq, there was reason to believe that that U.S.-Iran relations had turned a corner. The government of Iran and Qasem Soleimani hated both the Taliban and Saddam Hussein. And there are few better ways to turn a nation from enemy to friend than fighting two back-to-back wars as allies. I mean, it worked for the United States and England. Um, So the question is, how did things get fucked up from this point? Like, that seems like a pretty great spot to be in. You're fighting alongside each other. You're, like, fucking up two of their big enemies in a row. Uh, What turned things bad? You have any guesses? Um, I'm going to say white people because they're never happy. Yeah, it's and a when you're a person of person. color or grow, grown up with immigrants, you just take what you can get and you understand and you go, I'm not going to cause more trouble because like I see what the situation is and I know it might not be better for us in any other way. This might be as good as it gets. So I'm going to fucking shut up and keep my head down and not speak out where I'm not supposed not supposed to speak out. Maybe I'm speaking a little too much from how my father would talk to me, but uh, <laughs> that's what it always felt like. Well, you know who didn't worry at all about speaking out uh, mm. recklessly because he knew that none of it would ever harm him? Who? Was, was, was George Bush and one of his speechwriters. <sighs> In January 2002, President George W. Bush delivered his first post-9-11 State of the Union address. He named Iran as part of an axis of evil alongside Iraq and North Korea, three nations which, notably, did not collaborate or work together in any meaningful sense of the word. This declaration took Iran by surprise, considering their soldiers were literally fighting alongside the United States and Afghanistan. Mm. Now, Ryan Crocker was deputy chief of the American embassy in Kabul at the time. As a result of this position, he communicated regularly with a representative of the Iranian government, a guy who was basically the direct mouthpiece for Qasem Soleimani. Uh, Crocker had not been warned that the United States was about to declare Iran part of an axis of evil in a speech, uh, and he was very unpleasantly surprised when he realized this is what had gone down. And here's how Crocker recalled the hours after the axis of evil speech in Kabul. Quote, He saw the negotiator, the Iranian negotiator, the next day at the UN compound in Kabul, and he was furious. You completely damaged me, Crocker recalled him saying. Soleimani is in a tearing rage. He feels compromised. Mm -hmm. The negotiator told Crocker that, at great political risk, Soleimani had been contemplating a complete reevaluation of the United States, saying- Which makes sense. (laughs) Why wouldn't he? Maybe it's time to rethink our relationship with the Americans. The Axis of Evil speech brought these meetings to an end. Reformers inside the government, who had advocated a rapprochement with the United States, were put on the defensive. Recalling that time, Crocker shook his head. We were just that close. One speech word and one speech changed history. Mm, Great. What's new? A bush. But hey, no, bushes are cool people. They hang out with Ellen. And we should, we should, (laughs) I want to note, Bush should get some blame for that speech. But we should throw a lot of blame, too, on the guy who wrote the Axis of Evil speech. And the yeah. Axis of Evil speechwriter was a fellow you might know from the internet today named David Froome. 
Now, Froome is currently a staff... Yeah, he's currently a staff writer at The Atlantic and a never-Trump idiot grifter king. Uh, He wrote a stupid book about how Trump is bad, and despite the fact that all of his previous work as a neocon was laying the ground for Trump. Anyway, fuck David Froome. Uh, You can find him on Twitter at at David Froome, but you probably shouldn't because this shitbird has done more than enough damage to the world and should not be listened to by anyone on any subject ever again. Uh, I will admit that it's pretty hilarious that his current pinned tweet, which I think he means is a reference to the Trump administration, is the sentence, when this is all over, nobody will admit to ever having supported it. <laughs> I fucking hate David okay, Froome. Okay, um, you fucking piece of <laughs> you fucking shit. moron. Yeah. But in no fairness. No one will remember it, this. It is debatable as to whether or not Iran was ever actually seeking rapprochement with the United States. Qasem was, again, I can't emphasize this enough, a spy chief, and every piece of information that he allowed to get out about him carries the risk of being a piece of disinformation, because that's what spies do. Now, maybe he wanted to spread the rumor that the axis of evil speech is why relations broke off. It's impossible to prove this to a point of certainty. All that I can prove to a point of certainty is that David Froome is an idiot. Now, Mm -hmm. whatever the truth behind all this, by 2004, Saddam Hussein was out of Iraq and Soleimani's Quds Force was committed to ensuring that the U.S. followed him. They began to manufacture and export huge amounts of explosively formed projectiles, or EFPs. These are basically roadside bombs that launch a molten copper slug into armored vehicles. EFPs were miles ahead of the indigenous improvised explosives in Iraq, and they could only have been manufactured in Iran and sent into Iraq. And in short order, roughly 20% of American combat deaths in Iraq were blamed on these weapons. Um, so this is like what a lot of U.S. military planners uh, will will like really point to as to why they hated Soleimani. And it's one of those things there – were, there have been a lot of people in the United States military establishment since Bush was in office who wanted us to assassinate this guy. And both Bush and Obama – were intelligent enough to be like, it's just not worth the fallout. Um, There's a part of me that thinks the reason he was assassinated is that eventually enough of those guys got forced out by Trump that some of the military people who were just thinking of like their dead friends were were like, we've got a chance. He doesn't know what the consequences will be and we can get rid of this guy that we hate. Um, God, that's I think that might be what happened. Yeah. Now, uh, emotions were running the decisions and not true logic. Yes, yes. And it's one of those things, oh, I don't morally blame a military leader who had friends killed by an EFP for wanting that guy to be killed. It's what you do if your friends got killed. But part of the reason why the military doesn't run the show in our government is because you shouldn't have those people making the calls. You should have civilians with a level of separation from all of those sort of calls and a level of emotional separation making decisions, which is why we didn't assassinate this guy earlier because the powers that be the civilians who are running our military as it is supposed to be were like i know you're pissed but that's a bad call like it's going to endanger more lives and i i think one of the stories of the trump administration is again those norms that existed for a good fucking reason going away um yeah now um some of that's my own speculation but we do know that the EFPs in particular are why so many U.S. military people really hated Soleimani. 
Now, uh, Qasem Soleimani's war against the United States in Iraq was a textbook case of how to wage a successful insurgent conflict. He and his Quds Force succeeded in briefly bridging the Sunni-Shiite divide among insurgent groups, supporting both in their efforts to kill American soldiers. One way he did this was by using his connections to the head of intelligence in Assad's Syria to allow Sunni extremists to move through Syria and across Iraq's porous border. This provided huge numbers of foreign fighters to battle American soldiers. It also helped establish the networks of Sunni extremists in that region, in Syria and in northern Iraq, that years later would coalesce into what we now know as ISIS. Um, so this is, again, a decision with profoundly mixed consequences. And I'm going to quote again from that New Yorker article. In many cases, al-Qaeda was allowed a degree of freedom in Iran as well. Crocker told me that in May 2003, the Americans received intelligence that al-Qaeda fighters in Iran were preparing to at an, at an attack on Western targets in Saudi Arabia. Crocker was alarmed. They were there under Iranian protection planning operations, he said. He flew to Geneva and passed a warning to the Iranians, but to no avail. Militants bombed three residential compounds in Riyadh, killing 35 people, including nine Americans. As it turned out, the Iranian strategy of abetting Sunni extremists backfired horrendously. Shortly after the occupation began, the same extremists began attacking Shiite civilians and the Shiite-dominated Iraqi government. It was a preview of the civil war to come. Welcome to the Middle East, the Western diplomat in Baghdad told me. Soleimani wanted to bleed the Americans, so he invited in the jihadis, and things got out of control. Now, one of the things that's really frustrating to me right now is that you'll see in like a lot of the anti-war left people celebrating Soleimani as like an enemy of ISIS and Islamic extremism. And it's true that his forces fought against ISIS and that he helped in the campaign to destroy ISIS. But he was also integral in helping ISIS come about in kind of the same ways that the United States were. And this is one of the things that's, I think, ironic to me is that if you look at like a lot of the mistakes that the U.S. made that allowed ISIS to get a foothold in Syria and Iraq and a lot of the mistakes. Iran made that allowed ISIS to gain a foothold in the same region, they're not entirely different. Um, and I think they're both based in this kind of a, an attempt to use these forces for your own gain that backfired. Um, it's an interesting story, um, but it's a lot more complicated than a lot of people on Twitter are giving it credit for being. So that's, right. my, that's my take on it. Now, in 2011, when the Syrian civil war started up, Soleimani ordered members of the uh, Iraqi Shiite militias that he'd formed to help resist the U.S. Uh, into Syria to support Assad's beleaguered and still incompetent military. Um, and this is, again, like there's quotes that you get from like members of the Iranian government at the time that are like, if we lose Damascus, we lose Tehran. Um, because like huh. Syria connects uh, Iran to Lebanon. And like Hezbollah is a right. hugely important chunk of like Iran's international policies, particularly like in terms of like what they consider to be the resistance to Israel. So there's very much this understanding that we cannot let Assad in Syria fall or it's the end of us. Um, and yeah. there's also another one of the things that you'll hear, you'll hear quotes along the lines of, unlike the Americans, we stick by our friends. And obviously, I hate me some Bashar al-Assad, but there's a point there that I think gets to like why the United States is doomed to always lose right. whenever it gets involved in conflict in the Middle East is a country like Iran under a guy like Soleimani and whoever's going to come next to him is capable of, 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 of thinking 
in terms of decades, in terms of we have been supporting this regime in Syria for years, and we will continue to, and we will gain certain long-term benefits from being solid as a rock in our support of this regime. And they did things like they loaned uh, Assad $7 billion. They sent thousands of soldiers in to fight, a a significant chunk of whom died fighting for Assad. Um, Whereas in the United States, you never get plans that go much further than four, maybe eight years. And nobody who we back, as we've the Kurds in Syria have most recently seen, nobody can trust that we'll stay there for any length of time. Um, which is like when you're looking at why we continually fuck up in the Middle East, I think that is as much of a reason as anything, is the fact that like nobody can really trust us to hang around. Um, and meanwhile, with a country like Iran, if you're Iran's ally – you kind of can know what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's not because, you know, it's because of national self-interest. It's because Iran sees Syria as an integral part of its national defense and its foreign policy. But like, if you're Syria, you can trust Iran to do certain things to back your ass up. And if you're a U.S. ally in the Middle East, you can never trust the United States further than about four years out. Right. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... uh. I mean, it's like the American way is to always just have your own back and not consider um, the consequences in a weird way. Uh, Yeah, I don't don't care for this. It's this problem of like, like, obviously, I'm not in favor of I think it's good that we get to vote regularly on a new government. But there are aspects of it that are dumb. And one of the things that's dumb about it is that it means our entire foreign policy changes on a dime every four to eight years. Every uh, and. Maybe there's a way to have a government where we still get to vote out leaders regularly, but also we don't whiplash our allies every time someone with a different opinion winds up in charge. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a way to figure that out. God, <laughs> like, you would think. Or like, yeah, oh, just keep it. I don't even know. Like, it, it's so it's so tough to think about because like. I mean, more so when you were talking, I started thinking a lot about my Iranian family and hoping I feel like the best outcome would be that the U.S. understands that the attacks or the missiles that were just fired are in retaliation of them killing Soleimani, and they just take it as that. They go, okay, that's enough, and that they don't retaliate into Iran. Because I feel like um, this country can't... I, I don't even know like what to think. Like We can't stand here... And then be like, okay, well, let's just all vote. Like, it doesn't, nothing makes sense anymore. And I'm really starting to become a little unraveled as we go on. Um, I don't know. I, I really, it doesn't even feel like just being like, well, we got to get out there and vote them out is enough. It's like, why is no one taking this person out of the control? Like, it, it seems so, I feel so lost. Currently, I don't know what I want. I just want it to be done. I want this man to be out and I don't want I don't want anyone else to die. Is that fucked? Is that like just too like I don't know, yeah, naive? I mean, like right now the most recent news that just came out after the uh, the Iran launched missiles into uh the Al-Assad uh airbase near Erbil is that um uh, one of the advisors to Iran's supreme leader, a guy named uh, Saeed Jalili, posted to Twitter a, a picture of the Iranian flag. And mm-hmm. y- if you'll remember when Trump announced Trump announced the killing of Soleimani, basically, by just tweeting a picture of the American flag. Right. Um, 
and so it, that's it his. just gotcha. it keeps getting dumber. Like like don't. That's not the direction it should be heading, where we just post flags and shoot missiles at each other. <laughs> like that's that's not a. Oh boy, um, I'm not happy with that development. Um, yeah, and also it just came out that uh, Iranian officials are warning that uh, if the U.S. retaliates to the strikes that Iran just launched, uh, Hezbollah will fire rockets at Israel. So that's this is all going great oh in boy. real time, everybody. Fun one, super cool. Oh boy. I mean, I think boy, howdy. The best we can do is understand that we did something we shouldn't have done without a plan, and now we have no plan, and now we're here, and it's like, what are we supposed to do? You can't go into Iran. You just can't do it. You cannot go yeah. start a war with Iran. You definitely can't go start a, like a foot war with Iran. You're not. This isn't. This is absurd. We. We're, no one's going to survive this. You're not going to put these yeah. poor military – the U.S. military does not deserve this. They do not deserve to have to c- fly troops out there while they're literally telling troops to get the fuck out of here. This is not good. No, well, and it's, here well, we I mean, are. It's, it's fundamentally like – one of the things that was really frustrating in the lead up to the, the fucking election is that there would be all these guys who are ostensibly on the left who would be like – well, Donald Trump at least is like our best bet. Like this is someone I, I really respect. Otherwise, uh, Jeremy Scahill over at the Intercept something said something like Trump is the best might be our best bet for like not any getting America involved into any new wars. And it was like if you listen to his actual rhetoric, he was never anti-war. He was just anti actually like committing. Like he was never anti-war. He was anti the only thing about war that isn't all negative, which is like the ability to build long-term relationships and potentially stability in areas at the cost of lives and in a significant amount of money, um, like what we had helped to achieve in chunks of Northeast Syria, um, like what we helped to achieve in chunks of Northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, he was against that stuff. He was not against murdering people and sending in troops as long as he got to steal oil from people. Like that that was the thing that Trump said is like, number one, he's fine with fucking bombing the shit out of people. And number two, he thinks when we're involved in a country militarily, we should get to take half their oil. Like he was always just a pirate. Um, just a bunch of idiots tricked themselves into thinking he was anti-war because they hated Hillary Clinton. It's just so frustrating. Um, how dumb people were. Uh, and now we're yeah. seeing like, yeah, he's just sending more troops into the Middle East and they're getting shot at by rockets and he's bombing sovereign nations that are on paper our military allies because yeah, it's just so dumb. It's so dumb. Yeah, there's no logic. But Do you think there's an adult in the room anywhere in this situation? Uh, not Not anymore. Hmm. Not anymore. I mean, the problem is that, like, everybody's convinced they're the adult in the room. Like, these military guys, the guys who I suspect, like, pushed – were you know, part of what was pushing the assassination of Suleimani would say that, like, no, we are the hard-nosed adults. We understand the realities of the world. And this guy was a bad guy, and he killed our men, and, like, sometimes you got to take it to the bad guys. And I, I think Suleimani was a bad guy. I think he did some terrible things. I think his backing of the Assad regime was awful. But the right answer and the smart answer – is not always killing everybody who does bad things, especially since for as much ugly shit as Suleimani did, you can find American generals who did a lot of similar things who are alive today. And Qasem Suleimani doesn't have nearly as much blood on his hands as, say, Henry Kissinger does. Like, that's just a reality of the world, is that if you go around missile striking everybody who has done bad things, you will be at war with everybody and a lot more people will die. 
And yeah. it's not satisfying when you've lost a friend as a result of something that guy did. But that guy lost friends as a result of something some of your buddies did. Right. Because like that's the fucking way this game is played. And I hate all of the people who actually consider it a game, which is most of the people that we talk about in stories like this. Like, I hate them all. Um, but I was thinking the other day how circular history is like it's I had a very dark thought where I was like oh this will never end like we will maybe relations will get better maybe they won't but we will be in this cycle forever and it feels like it just you know, happens and happens and happens we we do I, whenever I get too trapped in that kind of thinking one thing I like to think about is uh, France and Germany Mm-hmm. Um, and France and England, which are all countries that were trapped in a centuries-long cycle of constant and incredibly bloody warfare. Right. And now all of their teenagers fuck each other every summer and get drunk and take ecstasy and That's dance true. to electronic music. That is very and there's true. never going to be a war between those three countries again. Right. Um, and a ton of ugly blood between them. Um so I don't think it's hopeless. Okay. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way to look at it. I can see that. Yeah. It does require – number one, it requires being like, well, okay, you have guys on your side who killed a lot of our guys and the shit they did was fucked up. We have guys on our side who killed a lot of your guys and that shit is fucked up. And at some point we have to stop taking vengeance on each other. Otherwise, we're just going to keep killing each other and nothing's ever going to get better. And that is eventually France and Germany and England stopped counting who had killed more of the other sons. And they just started taking ecstasy together in dance clubs. (laughs) And that made things better. Um, And yeah, we've had a digression a bit. We should get back to talking about Qasem Soleimani. Right. so, uh, in 2011, when the Syrian civil war started up, Soleimani ordered members of the Iraqi Shiite militias he'd formed uh, to resist the U.S. Uh, um, into Syria to support Assad's beleaguered uh, military, which was, as it is now, completely incompetent. I was just watching a video the other day of, like, 30 soldiers of the Syrian Arab army supported by a tank uh, fleeing from nine, uh, f- like, jihadi fighters in idlib hmm. <laughs> it's just like you guys still haven't figured out how to be a fucking military well, that's why were the they point. fleeing they were just like they're 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 conscripts they're poorly trained they don't uh, know what they're doing they're poor like they're only led by corrupt like the only competent fighters in in uh, uh in syria on the side of the syrian government are like hezbollah and other like iranian backed militias like they have a lot of competent fight and that's yeah i'm going to read a quote from the new yorker about that Quote, Suleimani also set up additional Shia militia groups. These included a group of Afghans resident in Iran, the Fatimayun Division, and a Pakistani uh, outfit, the Zebnayabiyun Brigade. The very names of these groups announce Iran's sectarian intentions. Shia Muslims accord Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet, a status comparable to that of the Virgin Mary in Catholicism, while Zainab, Fatima's daughter, was the sister of Hussein, whose, la- whose death at the Battle of Karbala formed a pivotal moment in the Sunni-Shia schism. Forces under his command were instrumental in many of the major offensive during the Syrian war, including the recapture of Qasr from the rebels. So most experts view Iran's support as embodied by Qasem Soleimani because he is completely in charge of uh, the Iranian effort in Syria, is absolutely critical to Bashar al-Assad staying in power. And Qasem Soleimani is really the man who runs the Syrian uh, civil war for the regime for a lot of the war. Like he is one of the top players and maybe the only competent one. Uh-huh. Um, or at least, like the the I mean, there's other competent Iranians involved. Nobody in the Syrian Arab army is very good at what they do. 
Um, now, today, the SAA is obviously still not great, uh, but the entrance of Iranian-backed militias, including the Lebanese Hezbollah, provided the regime with enough competent fighters to recapture critical cities like Aleppo and swing the tide of war back in Assad's favor. And it's it's hard to exaggerate how much human misery this has been responsible for. Uh, the siege of Aleppo alone cost thousands of lives, and the fact that Assad's regime survives has allowed them to, among other things, incarcerate and torture to, de- uh, to death around 100,000 people. This was all done, or at least the support of the Assad regime by Soleimani uh, was done for nationalist motivations. He was fighting for Iran more than anything else. Um, and it, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we've gone into why uh, that's critical for, for him, why they see it as like a matter of sort of like national survival to support Syria in this war. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that's important to understand. Uh, so while almost every U.S. attempt at projecting power and influence uh, in the Middle East over the last 20 years has ended in object failure, mass death, and unspeakable expense, Qasem Soleimani and his Quds Force have been extremely successful in spreading Iranian power across the region. Thanks to a network of militias and an incredibly successful political influence campaign, Iran near ha- now has deep connections to the government of Iraq, basically owns the government of Syria, and maintains a sizable base of power in Lebanon. Uh, in addition to that, uh, they also have a huge base of control and support in Yemen because the the Houthi militias that are currently fighting against the Saudi-led coalition uh, are backed by Iran. And it costs Iran, you know, they spend millions per week supporting the Houthis and the Saudis spend billions per week bombing them. Um, And it's kind of the opposite of the case in in Syria. In in Syria, uh, Iran is definitely on support of the side that has killed the most innocent people. In Yemen, they are on support of the side that is fighting against the people who are murdering civilians by the thousands. The Saudi-led coalition has been responsible for the vast majority of the deaths in Yemen. So this is always very fucking complicated when we talk about these different conflicts. And I'm not going to give the Iranian campaign sort of in Yemen as much time as it deserves. Um, But it's important to see, like, when Qasem comes to power in charge of the Quds Force, um, like – other than like Hezbollah, which is still at that point kind of nascent in Lebanon, uh, they don't have a lot of influence in the rest of the region. And by the time Qasem Soleimani is killed, the Iraqi government is on his side. There are 150,000 Shia militiamen backed by Iran living who are like Iraqis. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are Iran-backed militias in Syria that have been responsible for keeping the government in power, and the government owes Iran billions of dollars. Uh, Hezbollah is one of the most dominant forces in uh, Lebanon, um, and they also – Iran has a huge amount of influence and dominance in Yemen as a result of their support of the Houthis. That's all Soleimani's doing. Like mm. that's a huge amount of power and influence. And you have to compare how Iran's ability to project power in the Middle East has changed in 20 years to how the United States is, has, where we, in a lot of ways it's completely collapsed. Um, yeah. As a result of the fact that like we're we're incredibly inconsistent, we don't tend to run our campaigns competently. Like mm-hmm. it's one of those things um, on a purely intellectual level. He's very good at what he did. Yeah, um, he, he had an incredibly successful career, almost breathtakingly so. Um, yeah, he did. So it's pretty wild. Yep. Yeah, it's it's he's a very influential fella. 
Now, um, for most of 20 years, uh, Qasem traveled with near impunity from Baghdad to Damascus to the suddenly frontline outposts and battlefields of the Iraqi and Syrian civil wars. In the years since 2011, he went from a silent background figure, which is appropriate for a spy master, to a highly public war hero, constantly photographed standing on trucks surrounded by fighters. His image grew even more prominent after 2013, when ISIS began its bloody march across the Middle East. The Shia militias that Qasem had spent years building were some of the few capable forces in Iraq during the early stages of the civil war, when the soldiers of the Islamic State were at the gates of Baghdad. The role these militias played in stopping ISIS is wildly overstated now online, but in the early days of the civil war, they were quite important. As the war drug on and the Iraqi army reformed and retrained other units, including the famous Golden Division and the counterterrorism forces, uh, these forces did the vast majority of the actual fighting to retake Iraq from Daesh. Um, when I was there, we ran into the Hasht al-Shabi militias, which are sort of like the popular mobilization forces, the Iranian-backed militias. Um, now and again, but it, it really was like most of the fighting, like the recapturing of Fallujah and Mosul, like it was, it was like Golden Division and and you know CTS forces mm -hmm. more than anything else that did a lot of that fighting, right? Um, and kind of like where uh, uh, the popular mobilization forces were critical was like kind of in, when 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 ISIS was moving on Baghdad and stuff, as the kind of the West struggled to get its act together and providing you know useful support. So you don't want to denigrate and say that they didn't have an impact in stopping the spread of ISIS because they absolutely did. Uh -huh. But like the idea that that Suleimani and his militias beat ISIS, I mean, it, it it ignores thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Sunni Iraqis who did the bulk of the actual fighting against Daesh. Um, right. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and I should note that my source on this take is not just due to my own biased recollections from my time in Iraq. Uh, it's also due to other sources within the Iranian government. Because The Intercept mm. recently published a leaked archive of secret Iranian spy cables that they got their hands right, on somehow. Right. These cables came from members of the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence and Security, uh, which tends to be pretty antagonistic towards the Quds Force. Because, again, and this is another frustrating thing, like – you read about like coverage of this and it like Iran this, Iran that. And like to a certain extent, it's hard not to when you're like talking about multiple different nations. Mm -hmm. But like there are a number of different forces within the Iranian government that want different things. Uh, can and, you like, explain folks, to me why the yeah. intelligence is not fans of the Kuds? Yeah, as I understand it, it kind of goes back to like we were saying when, you know, you have the you have the the revolution and the Shah is out and the new government doesn't really trust the military or the existing security mm -hmm. apparatus. Like you're not going to tear all of that down because it's too much of a pain in the ass to do so, but you also don't trust them. So the Revolutionary Guard and the Quds Force come out as a way for the clerics to kind of have their own military and intelligence machine. Okay. The Iranian Ministry of Intelligence and Security is like basically the descendant of like the, the older standing security services in Iran. Okay. Um, and so they're they're not the Quds Force. Okay. And in a lot of ways, they view them as kind of an enemy because they're like opposed sort of forces. Um, huh. Like they're, they're more antagonistic. Opposed isn't quite the right word, right. but like I hope I've gotten that across to some extent. I'm not an expert on this. You know, I, I, I've That's never, the understanding I've never I like yeah. read up on that or even really thought about it. Yeah. It never occurred to me, but it really makes sense because there's so many working, like you said, forces yeah. in Iran that it, – you know, I tend to forget sometimes that, like, the, the whole era before the revolution was just a different time. And while they did try and eliminate the majority of that influence, like, certain things 
are still kind of like working within yeah. Iran just because they're yeah, needed to be. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to like you're not going to fire all of the police and stuff overnight, especially since you need those people to like help you like assert your power now. Like it, yeah. it's just like but then you don't trust them and you build your own structure and like things mm-hmm. move on from there. That that's the understanding that I have. Um, So anyway, a bunch of these cables from the Ministry of Intelligence and Security about these guys talking about Soleimani uh, and his militias in Iraq uh, leaked out. And these are all from 2013 to 2015. And I'm going to quote from that Intercept article now. Well, the Iranian-led war against ISIS was raging, Iranian spies privately expressed concern that the brutal tactics favored by Soleimani and his Iraqi proxies were laying the groundwork for major blowback against the Iranian presence in Iraq. Soleimani was also criticized for his own alleged self-promotion amid the fighting. Photos of the Iranian commander on battlefields across Iraq had helped build his image as an iconic military leader, but that outsized image was also turning him into a figure of terror for many organized Iraqis. For many uh, ordinary Iraqis. In some documents, intelligence officers criticized Soleimani for alienating Sunni Arab communities and helping to create circumstances that justified a renewed American military presence in Iraq. A 2014 MOIS document uh, lamented that partly because Soleimani broadcasted his role as commander of many of the Iraqi Shia militias fighting ISIS, Iraqi Sunnis blamed the Iranian government for the persecution that many were suffering at the hands of these same forces. The document discussed a recent assault by Iran-backed forces against ISIS fighters in the the Sunni farming community of Jerf al-Sakar. The attack had included a number of Shia militia groups, including a notorious outfit known as Asaib al-Al-Haq, which is also the guys who fired missiles at those U.S. bases a couple of weeks ago and a couple of days ago. The militia succeeded in routing the Islamic State, but their victory soon gave way to a generalized slaughter of locals, transforming the sweetness of Iran's triumph into bitterness, in the words of one case officer. This is that case officer talking. It is mandatory and necessary to put some limits and borders on the violence being inflicted against innocent Sunni people in Iraq and the things that Mr. Soleimani is doing. Otherwise, the violence between Shia and Sunni will continue, the uh, MOIS report continued. At the moment, whatever happens to Sunnis, directly or indirectly, is seen as having been done by Iran, even when Iran has nothing to do with it. And this is another part of, like, the complexity here. And we're talking about, like... You know, if you're trying to get like a, a fair assessment of Soleimani's role vis-a-vis ISIS, um, you have to account the fact that he formed these militias, which were a part of defeating ISIS. You also have to take into account that a big part of why ISIS gained a foothold in Iraq is because these Shia militia, militias, particularly in places like Mosul, brutally suppressed and executed Sunnis, um, based in a large part on like long-standing local different like like arguments and hatreds between Sunni and Shia, but like Iran then supported those guys by giving them weapons, so they were able to carry out these blood debts, and that provided fuel for the Sunni uprising uh, that like ISIS really represented in Iraq, so that then some of these like these Sunnis could get guns and kill Shias, and it's like. And a lot of what I saw when I was over in Mosul was people complaining about these – the Iran-backed militias and like the violence they were carrying out against Sunnis again uh, in response for a lot of violence that like Sunnis who had supported Iraq had carried out. And they're like, this is just going to cause another cycle of violence between Sunni and Shia in Mosul and it's like, it, like fuck this shit. Yeah. Like this is all very messy. Um, now – Very. Uh, in those – Yeah. 
Um, in these documents, Iranian officers speculated that much of the propaganda campaign to turn Soleimani from a secretive spy chief into a public hero had to do with his hopes of a future campaign to be president of Iran. And this is one angle you're going to hear about Soleimani a lot, that he was being groomed or at least grooming himself to become the next president of Iran. This is possible, but I think some other theories might also be possible. I thought so maybe like theory, he would take on the next supreme leadership. That's yeah, I think that's really possible. Like what there's the two real possibilities is that A, he was pushing he was being groomed and sort of like pushing himself to either be the president or the next supreme leader of Iran. Mm -hmm. Totally possible. He had the kind of reputation where that could have happened. Yeah. I think the other possibility is that the Iranian government and Soleimani himself were preparing for him to be killed by the United States and no. wanted him to be a, a potent symbol when it happened. That really? They were assuming it was going to happen and that he was trying to provoke that assassination. I think it's possible. I so think it's they, possible. Wow, you just blew my mind. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't know. Um, yeah. But it, it, I think both are possible. So Okay. Starting in 2013 with that New Yorker article, Qasem Soleimani's most frequent public appearances were at funerals for deceased Quds Force soldiers. For years, Qasem made a point of meeting with the families of martyrs. And here's an excerpt from one part of the article talking about his visit to the funeral of a comrade who died fighting in Syria. Quote, he has a fierce attachment to martyred soldiers and often visits their families. In a recent interview with Iranian media, he said, when I see the children of the martyrs, I want to smell their scent and I lose myself. I think that's something that probably made more sense in the original Farsi than it does translated into English. Um, as the funeral continued, he and other mourners bent forward to pray, pressing their foreheads onto the carpet. One of the rarest people who brought the revolution and the whole world to you is gone. Alireza Panihan, the imam, told the mourners, Suleimani cradled his head in his palm and began to weep. So in public appearances, number one, Suleimani's constantly at the funerals of martyrs, constantly honoring these soldiers who have died in his command. Um, and he's very humble about his own history, even mocking his short stature by describing himself as the smallest soldier. Uh, he's <laughs> infamous for refusing to let audience members kiss his hand at public appearances. Um, but online, he was Germs. a lot less humble. And Germs, before it was, bro. Yeah. You can't be having <laughs> yeah, randos yeah. kiss your hand. I mean, but there's a lot of random kissing uh, in that part of the that part of the world. True, but cheek to cheek, uh, you keep it light. You keep it light. Cheek to cheek, keep, keep it, it light. light. Okay, I'm practice at this. Don't kiss my hands. Now, uh, so so he's 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 trying to be humble, like in person and at these events, and that's clearly a big part of his image. But he also has a big online presence. And before it was shut down in 2019, his official Instagram had more than 800,000 followers. Um, Pretty good gram. Now, for its part, <laughs> pretty the good government <laughs> of Iran, pretty good gram. For its part, the government of Iran devoted significant resources to burnishing a cult of personality around Soleimani. The supreme leader of Iran referred to Qasem Soleimani pre-assassination as a living martyr of the revolution. Now, martyrdom became an increasing theme in later public appearances of Soleimani. In 2014, Defa Pressed at IR, which is a website popular among internal Iranian security insiders, published the text of a speech Soleimani had made back in 2007. They republished it in 2014, uh, praising the martyrs of the Iran-Iraq war. And I'm going to read it from a write-up in the Middle East uh, Media Research Institute here. 
Suleimani stressed while praising martyrdom that he himself yearned to gain the exalted status of a martyr, and added that jihad is a supreme value in war that allows Iranian fighters to compensate for their technological inferiority and lack of operational readiness and to defeat the enemy. He emphasized that absolute obedience to, re- to the regime of the rule of the jurisprudent was also a decisive factor in war. In light of the prestige earned by the martyrs, he said, I pray to God for my own end to be martyrdom as well, and that he will not deny me this mighty blessing granted to outstanding individuals. So, hmm. I think there's an an argument that maybe, and that, because like one of the things that, you know, the, the U.S. will argue provoked our assassination of Soleimani um, is the fact that a few days before uh, that, that like Assab al that whatever, that, that Iranian-backed uh, militia in Iraq, um, like the same one that committed one of the massacres uh, during the fighting against ISIS, fired missiles at a U.S.-Iraqi uh, joint base and killed an American contractor. And that was like, that's sort of like part of what the U.S. used to justify this, like killing Soleimani. Um, and I part of me wonders... Like it, it seems clear he's being set up for something. It was either politics or because they wanted this guy to be famous and beloved um, and well known, and they wanted to provoke the U.S. to doing something dumb um, right. to take him out. Because then he's a martyr, and then you can use him to galvanize resistance to the United States, which is a big part of Iran's foreign policy is to galvanize resistance to the United States. And right now, Qasem Soleimani has become a symbol of resistance to the United States to millions of Shiites across the Middle East. His picture hangs over streets on banners from Beirut to Baghdad right now. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the actual case is. Um, it's also he's like his funeral has been used by the government to kind of try to unify people in the wake of there are just a bunch of massive protests in Iran. And the Quds Force, you know, under the command of Soleimani, had like something like 1,500 anti-government protesters uh, killed um, during like this uprising. Um, And now I think they're kind of using his assassination and like this aggression by the United States. The attempt at least is to kind of pull the country back together. Um, It's uh, fucking – Hard to say what the actual plan was or if there was a plan or if I'm reading too much into this. He's a spy commander chief guy. So part of me is like, you know, maybe there was a deep plan here. Maybe he just wanted to be supreme leader or president and uh, he never thought that we would do something this dumb. Either way, I'm just seeing now that the president is going to address the country later tonight. So that's probably not going to be good. (laughs) Uh, I hope it's him saying he is tapping out because God damn. I don't think that is what's happening. Oh God. Well, here's hoping for the best. Um, pray for the people of Iran. Pay for, pray for the people of Iraq. Uh, pray for yeah. the people of the Middle East who will suffer because of what is to come. Thanks to the lack of adults in the room. Pray for, yeah, the lack of adults in the room. Ugh. (sighs) Well, I would say more, but I I have I'm a bit of I think I'm like in a bit shock in a bit. (laughs) I'm in a bit shock over everything that's kind of slowly pouring out in the news, and um, I need to go. uh, talk to my Iranian family members and make sure everyone's good to go because that's all I have Yay. is 
a Telegram app to make sure they're okay because it's it's that's the way it goes sometimes when your entire family lives in Iran and you have no sense of communication and this is the darkest fucking times and we can only um pray for this to end soon and for no yep. more people to die. Yeah, well, the U.S. just banned all civilian flights over the Gulf region, so that's not oh, a great yeah? sign. Jesus. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yep. everyone cool needs stuff. to tone it down. <laughs> that's just my, that is my final thought is tone it down. Pill, bro. Yeah. Yep. Which is, that's, that's. Well, I feel like now there a lot of people are going to get stuck in Iran, like American nationalists, because you have to go over the Gulf, right? Yeah, and there's a bunch of journalists there who were there from uh, the United States to, like, report on the funerals and stuff, which, uh, I mean, on one end, assuming they don't get taken into custody by the security forces, uh, is kind of a sweet position to be in as a journalist if you're the only people on the ground when something like this happens. Um, but I don't think it's, I think it's, it's going to be pretty, uh, horrific all around. Yeah. Well, um, if you're listening and if you're in any of those places, um, you're in our thoughts and, uh, just stay safe. Yeah. That's all you can do. Yep. I wish this could be more uplifting, but I, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the big question is, is this going to be a series of terrible airstrikes and missile strikes on Iran, or is Donald Trump going to actually send in ground troops? Uh, either way, probably a bad idea. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yes, this is mm-hmm. not, this, this not good. This not good. Yeah. And those are my final thoughts. This not good. Mm-hmm. Back to you, okay, Robert. <laughs> what if I was just yeah. the worst journalist? Yeah. <laughs> this not well, good. That's and back the episode. You. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at, at @bastardspod. You can find us on the internet behindthebastards.com. Uh, keep the people of Iraq and Iran and Syria, and Lebanon, and Yemen. Uh, all in your hearts uh, and hope that the fewest possible number of people die and what's about to happen. There's really nothing else to say. Yeah. We <laughs> Also, fuck David Froome. Yeah, fuck that guy. He is, he's tweeting about all of this shit right now and he should not be. No. Shut the fuck up about the Middle East, David. <laughs> Truly. Um... Okay, well, the episode's over. Oh, thank God. (laughs) I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.